This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. But you do go with them. I did. And they asked if I wanted a glass of wine. Did you have any sense of how long it had been? Oh, I had no idea. That's where things began to really come unraveled. Tell us what happened then. My guest today was a bright-eyed and beautiful 18-year-old girl with high hopes of escaping her small hometown in Colorado to pursue a modeling career in Europe. So she hopped on a plane and found herself in France. But what started out as a dream soon turned into an unimaginable nightmare. The day she arrived, she was kidnapped, drugged, beaten, and raped over a two-day period, and then dumped on a roadside, left for dead. She said she was so terrified and traumatized, she told no one about her ordeal for over a decade. So how did this broken young girl not only survive, but go on to thrive and become a best-selling author, speaker, an international life coach, helping hundreds of thousands of people the world over, and becoming best friends forever with my wife Robin in the process. Well, she's here today to tell her remarkable story, Cheryl Hunter. Good to meet you, and that is an amazingly tragic story that you overcame and have done a lot with, and I wanna talk about that, but. I want to go back to that time that this happened to you because this is a cautionary tale for a lot of people. It's a cautionary tale for young women that can be kind of naive and sucked into situations, even more so today with the internet and all that being active. And I also know that sexual assault is one of the most underreported crimes in the world, yet still one in four women have been victimized by it. And you've had that battle, and I wanna talk about that. Let's go back for a minute. You were in a hometown in Colorado, right? I grew up in a horse ranch high in the Rocky Mountains outside of Rye, Colorado, which has one stoplight that flashes. (laughs) It's never quite busy enough to need to turn red in any direction. Very small. So you know everybody. Yes. And everybody knows you. Everybody. That, as a kid, it was heaven. It was like out of a fairy tale. I grew up horseback and riding through the mountains. And then as a teenager it became a little too close for comfort. The fact that everyone did know about me and my family just seemed like too much, you know, I suppose everybody has a tough childhood. A teenage, teen teen years, teens can be mean, but I thought my answer was to leave. I was so naive that I thought if I left and went someplace where I was anonymous, I would outrun any problems. Yeah, and... When you say go where nobody knows you and outrun things, 
Europe's a long way from that little town in Colorado. You step off the plane in Nice? Well, I tried to come up with a plan. I was just going to, I was, I had talked my parents into allowing me, they were divorcing at the time. And so they didn't really talk. And I thought, oh, let me kind of play one against the other to get my dream of going there. And while I'm there, I'll figure out some way to stay. Right. And I had just before I left, picked up a, a magazine and saw that, oh, they're always looking for models. And I thought, well, I'm tall enough. I'm on the boys' basketball team. Let me just go someplace they need models, Europe. And I arrived, and a man with a camera around his neck walked up. I mean, we'd been there seconds. And at that young age, he had a camera around his neck. That was enough validation. He said, are you a model? I can make you one. Just come with me and my friend. Did anything flash through your head? Well, I thought... First, I, I had promised my mother I would not leave my friend. I, and I'd never broken a promise to my mother. But my mm. friend, who said, no way, you're not going, she mm. wanted to go home afterward. She didn't have the same dream of staying in the big city. And Well, so your friend's there with you, and something about them seemed believable to you, but not to her, right? Because she right. said, don't go. Yes, and I... To be truthful about it, it's not that it seemed like a good idea, but I thought, here's my ticket. It's probably not a, the best idea, you know, and I told my mother I would never leave my friend. We wouldn't split up, but what the heck? I'm a smart girl. I grew up, you know, training, breaking horses. I'm, I'm strong. I'm tough. I'm smart. I'm resourceful. I'll figure it out. You know, when I'm hearing about this and reading about this, the movie Taken flashes in my mind, you know, where the two girls walk out of the airport and there's somebody there saying, hey, want to go somewhere and meet up with us? And it just flashed in my head that you're not even in the town yet and somebody has got their hooks in you, but you do go with them. I did. And they asked if I wanted a glass of wine and they told me, the ringleader, there were two of them, he said, when you become a model, you're going to need to do cocaine. All models do cocaine. Now, I'm, I'd never seen drugs. I'd never, I was so sheltered. I didn't, I said no to the, to the wine. I wanted to be sober. We were going to shoot photos, I thought. You know, he had a camera. Did you go to a restaurant or bar? It, we or went what? to a restaurant. They told me where to meet them, and it was dark. There was the ocean on one side, so it was light on one side, but then dark at the back. I don't so know where everybody was. So you didn't leave with was. them, you met them somewhere? I met them. Okay. They gave me, he wrote it out in a dress. Okay. And they gave me an envelope, foil envelope, or like foil folded up, and I opened it up and they were like, you should do cocaine. And I opened it up and it was light brown. Now, I'm from Rye, Colorado, but I'd seen movies and I was like, that is not cocaine. And I just just folded it back up and I said no to the wine and they said, well, don't be a, you know, stupid American. You're so uptight, you Americans. And so I, you know, had a glass of wine. And, and the next thing I knew, I was in a car and like a, like a dog, I had my head halfway out the window. I was in the passenger seat. I was my tongue open and drooling and, and we were driving on a windy road. So you had been drugged, obviously, with the wine. Yeah. 
Did you have any sense of how long it had been? Oh, I had no idea. Was it dark out? No. Okay. So where did they take you at that point? We went, we stopped, um, we made a stop, and there was the, the big man with him, and we stopped, and there was a, a young girl that was there, and she was probably well, prepubescent, like 10 maybe. She was poking me, poking my face, like touching my face, I guess to wake me up or something. And I remembered looking at her and thinking she had the most beautiful eyes I'd ever seen. They just, they kind of, her top lashes and bottom lashes didn't meet in the corner. I, why I remembered this, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But I was looking at her and she was, she was gyrating on the big man's lap, like very, just completely inappropriate for a child. And that was, that's all I remember. Were you inside, outside? I was sitting in, still at the, like, at the door of the car. Okay. So they give you an address. You meet them in this place. They drug you there. You kind of come around in the car with your head hanging out the door, but they've taken you to a second location. And that's where things began to really come unraveled. Tell us what happened then. Well, I was just conscious then for a flicker. The next thing I remembered, I was lying on a cement floor, and I could hear this rustling sound. It was like of, of big plastic sheets. I guess it was some kind of construction site or something. No one was there. And the men were there. You know, no one else besides them. And I started, for some unknown reason, I started talking. I was talking about my little brother had been having problems in school. I wasn't premeditated talking. I just was saying, you know, he's so smart. And I know if he'd apply himself, he he's come up, comes up with inventions all the time. He's just so... And they kept asking me to shut up. And finally, but I wouldn't. I don't know why. I don't know what drove me to talk. It was just like I, I couldn't control myself. I don't know if it was the drugs or whatever. But I kept talking... And they started beating me, kicking me, the two of them. And finally I stopped and became silent and just laid there and pretended to be dead. I mean, they each had their way with me. And I, the only way I could cope was I just looked away and pretended it wasn't happening. I craned my head as far as I could off to the side. And when I did, I saw there was this little shimmering spark of light that was on the wall. And I thought, if I stare at that with all my might, I'll become it. I'm not this scrap heap of a girl being torn to shreds. I'm just this little shimmering spark of light that'll fly away whenever I want. And just ignoring it was happening was how I survived. I mean, I wasn't thinking about surviving. I was thinking, this is incredibly naive, but I was thinking, when are we going to take the photos? I was so, I was so naive. I had no idea that this, I mean, look, was it not going well? Yes, but I kept thinking, oh, well, this will be over soon and we'll go shoot the photos. I I just, that was what I did to cope. 
you, know, you hang on to something that's forward thinking so you can come out of this. It's a light at the end of the tunnel you create so you can look towards something because if you don't and you're just here, you described it as having demonic animals on top of you. They were that brutal with you at the time. Yes, and I just kept looking away. I just kept, they would leave, then leave me alone. And it got cold, very cold a couple times. I guess it was night. It was just, they would bring me something to drink once in a while. At a certain point, I was lying in my own urine. I just, one moment at a time, one moment. I just, that was it. And then finally, for whatever reason, they said, go clean yourself up. And there was a pipe coming out of the wall, like, you know, like a, 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 a pipe. I mean, not fixed or no finished. No faucet, just an open pipe. And I saw some sandpaper and I used it and scrubbed myself. And then one of them cut my hair. Like four inches of five inches of hair, just chopped it off. I don't, I, 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 have, over the years, I've tried to figure out, I have no idea. Put me in a car. What did he use to cut your hair with? Just scissors. But it was like he was being caring. Like he was trying to pretty me up for something or some dang thing. And then put me in a car and I was like, oh, a Mercedes Benz, wow. You know, I, I was so naive. I mean, you know, we had a pickup, you know. Um, and then we drive back down to town and we get to this place, this grassy area, and he just kind of pushes me out and I kind of fall to the ground and I just lay there like I'm going to play dead. And he says, darling, and I look and he snaps my photo. That was the photos. So they finally took your picture? Yeah. I just lay there, I mean, naively thinking I'll play dead like they don't know I'm alive or something. But I waited until the car was gone, looked around, and I got up and ran for my life. How far did you run? Into town. In those days, you couldn't, it, it was, there was no cell phones. You couldn't make an international call on a payphone. You had to go to a post office or an Amex office and make a call. And I stood there and waited and had them call my mom. So you ran to, what, a bank? Whatever it was, some place. Place you could get money, Where, like a Western you, Union or something. Well, they gave me my purse back. When I was there at one point, when I thought things, you know, I could tell things were, had gone wrong, and I'd said... Maybe I should go. And he says, where will you go? You don't have your purse with your passport and all the money you have in the world. I mean, which was true. Everything I owned was in that stupid purse. But they gave it back. And I went and called my mom. And usually you would have like a little phone booth and some privacy. But these phones were all, like on a bank of phones along a wall, like two, three feet in between. Because everything wasn't cell phone at that time. You do call her, yes. right? Yes, and she answers. It's the middle of the night. We talked about the call for years, but she answers, and I say, all I can come up with, I'm okay. I'm okay. She hadn't heard from you. No, and you we had a promise. It had been my birthday while I was there as well. We had a promise that I would reach out every few days to let her know I was okay. So you've been through this horrible thing. You finally get away, get back to civilization, 
you're away from then and you're safe on the phone, what happened then? And the ringleader walks in. My phone is at the end next to this big telescoping door that's wide open. And he leans against the wall and goes, hello, darling. Who are you calling? And I said, no answer. I literally just hung up on my mom. He found you in the phone. And asks me if I want to go have a drink like we're friends. And I said, I just need to go to the bathroom. And I stepped out. There was a big, wide sort of telescoping door on one side. You know, just big, wide, like not a door, like it went into one itself. And I stepped out that side, looked, and ran for my life. I used to run track at this age, and my feet were kicking my butt. I was running so fast. I've somehow found the little cruddy pension hotel place we were staying, went up there, told her we need to go, and we grabbed what we could and ran and hopped on a train. And that was that. I, I was at that age. What did you think when you're on the phone to your mother? You've escaped these men that have brutalized you and raped you for two days. You finally get back to civilization. You're finally safe around other people. And you look up and there he stands. I thought for years. So we got on this train. We happened to hopped on a train that was going to Italy. And we went through tunnels where the lights would go off. It would be black, like pitch black in a tunnel. I swear, like I felt someone breathing in my ear. And I mean, was it really him? No, I, I'm sure. But I, it was something that haunted me, like he would show up at any time. So the trip was now over, but I decided I was going to stay anyway, because dadgummit, I had gone through all that to be a model and I was going to just do it. So I went and got myself an agent and they sent me in, in England, and they sent me to Japan was the first thing they did. So after all of this happened, you don't tell your mother. Your friend who's waiting at the hotel, you don't tell her where you've been for two days. I don't say anything to anybody. Did she ask you? Well, I mean, no, she didn't. We were at that age. We just got on the train. We have to go. There was no conversation. I said, we just, we need to go now. And it's, we're at that age, we just don't have tough conversations. You step over things. Now, our friendship imploded but, and th as a result of it. But it was, th that was that. When my mom then asked me later, well, what happened when you called? I was so afraid. It was the middle of the night. Oh, nothing, nothing. I just stepped over it. I went on to become a model, and it was, frankly, the perfect place for me because never in all the years I was a model did anyone ask me my opinion, did ask me to talk. They didn't want me to open up. You were just like a physical doll, you know, I mean, like a human doll. So it was perfect. Mm -hmm. And I, here I was, I went to Japan and I, whenever I wasn't, I became a real recluse. I would have a book that would kind of keep me separate from people, not that they ever wanted to talk to me. But when I wasn't shooting, I hung out at my agent's office. And her grandparents were there because in Japan, they revere their elders and they're always there in case they want advice of any kind. And I was sitting in the conference room one day, running my fingers over this strange wooden table that had the eyes of the wood left in. And it was narrow at one end and wide in the other. I'd never seen something like this. But the grandmother said, oh, wabi-sabi. And that's when they took turns telling me about this, the most important of Japanese principles, the grandfather said which says that the beauty of anything 
any object lies in its flaws. It's not the polished up parts that make something beautiful. It's what is damaged, what is ruined. And something can only rise to beauty if it has a correlate degree of damages and imperfections. It was blowing my mind. I'd never heard anything like that. I had to leave. It was so overwhelming. Where did you go? I went out on the street and just started to walk as fast as I could, started to jog, started to clear my mind. Finally, I realized I hadn't eaten all day, and I stopped at a little cafe. I don't know, like the Japanese McDonald's, got my lunch at the counter, came and sat down. I was sitting at a table. There was a blank one, you know, an empty one in front of me. And then at the third table facing me was what was probably a bag woman. And I'm just kind of reading my book doing my thing like always, and she starts shouting. At you? And, well, it sure seems so. People are looking at her and looking at me and looking at her and looking at me. I'm like, mm, uh, I, I didn't like to be looked at. It wasn't like when I was a model where I'm just like a meat suit. This, they were looking at me. And the man at the table next to me leaned in and says, she asks why you make war on Japan. I'm like, I, I'm not in the army. I'm not a, 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 who do you think I am? And I got kind of indignant about it. And so then she starts yelling more. And she opened up out of one of her bags, this little cloth envelope and took two little photos, like passport photo looking things, black and white, a man and a woman, held them over her head. And the man at the table leaned in as she was shouting even more. And he said, she asks why you kill her parents. And now I had enough because everybody was looking at us. And I said, who do you think I am? I'm not, my grandparents, my grandfather was in World War II. Not me. I did not make war on Japan. I did not kill your parents. And I'm looking at her and she's crying and her snot is frothing up and I'm, she's crazy. And I'm saying to these people, can't you see she's crazy? Look at her eyes. And I locked eyes with her and was overcome with compassion because she wasn't crazy, she was just traumatized and had no idea how to make sense of what occurred to her. And I didn't see a crazy woman, I saw myself. And I bowed to her and she stopped and fell silent. And I said the only two words that made any sense, wabi-sabi. And I gathered everything and bowed to the people and they all bowed back. I used to think, oh, I'm going to have to live in Japan <laughs> for wabi-sabi to translate. I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life there. I prayed that the notion of wabi-sabi would translate. But I realized it does. It's not the things that are perfect about us that make us magnificent. It's all the other things that we thought were wrong about us. Did that help you embrace what you'd been living with at that point? It very much did. It made me realize I, I didn't know how to go on living. I was trapped in a hell of my own mind. And I thought if I told anybody what had occurred, they would know that I was damaged and ruined and filthy and stupid for having gone. And so I just kept it all to myself, but I was self-destructing, like falling apart. And it... The notion of wabi-sabi led me to believing that there was life on the other side of this and that somehow, some way, what made me bad or wrong could actually be what was right about me. I just had to figure out how.
You know, I have this very strong belief that every one of us has this personal truth that we believe about ourselves. And then we also have a social mask that we put on. And when we go out in the day, we always want to put our best foot forward. We want to look best. I mean, I come here every day, walk up here, I wear a suit because that makes me look credible. So you put all your things on. But aside from that, inside, we have a different reality. It's what we say to ourselves at three o'clock in the morning when we're awake staring at the ceiling. It's what we know about ourselves based on our experiences in life. And if we judge ourselves and judge ourselves harshly, then we think we're second-class citizens. We think we're damaged and they're not because we compare our reality to their social mask. If I know all of my flaws and fallacies, but I look at you and your social mask and I compare that, then I'm going to lose every time. But if I can embrace those things heal the things that need to be healed, accept the things that just have become part of me, and stop judging myself, then you can actually use those things as stepping stones. You can use them to change your life and others. And you made that decision in Japan, it sounds like. I you sure stopped did. judging yourself. Yes, I realized that there, perhaps I wasn't seeing it correctly. Perhaps there is such a thing as wabi-sabi. And everything that's wrong about me could be my salvation. So I set out to figure out how to make that reality rather than just a, uh, an aha moment. And I had said to my mom, without telling her what happened, I said, Mom, I'm depressed. And she, she's one of those people who hadn't experienced depression. So she said, do you mean bored? And I said, no, full on depressed. And she said, well, here's my advice. Find someone or someones who have it worse than you and help them. So I thought, well, I'm young, screwed up in the head, and I have no future. Who could be worse than me? Oh, old, screwed up in the head with no future. So I started volunteering at old age homes. And I thought I'd heard this concept go through the open door. So I thought I will take whatever someone tells me as advice as a door to go through. And someone started telling me about uh, personal development seminars. So I started taking those while I was volunteering at old age, age homes. And there were a lot of people who were Holocaust survivors. And I thought, perfect. I can learn from them and offer some help to them at the same time. And there were some who fared well and others who understandably hadn't. And I wanted to understand why. So I started interviewing them and war vets and then ultimately 9-11 first responders, people who'd gone through bona fide trauma. And I wanted to hear what they had done that had worked and what they hadn't. And I started building upon those things for myself, but thinking I'm going to codify my journey and my steps and give it away ultimately. So I'd started taking these personal development seminars and felt so much better when I was there and not so good when I wasn't. So I thought, I'm just going to get trained to lead them and then I can always feel good. And I realized it was a calling. As I was helping others, I was helping myself, but I still had never told my story until one night I was leading one of these seminars, years in, and I was leading an exercise on forgiveness. And I'd sort of posited that we can forgive anything. 
<laughs> and a woman was raising her hand and finally stood up and said, no, you can't. I had gone through genocide in my country. We came to the United States, and then I've been abused by my husband, and my children were abused by him, and there's certain things you can't forgive. And I kept saying, yes, you, you really can. It's not about them. It's about setting yourself free. And she wasn't having it, and nor were the people in the room. People were slamming notebooks down and walking out of the room, and I thought, I am for the first time going to lose the room. And I had a moment with myself and said, you are no longer an 18-year-old child who cannot handle whatever people will judge about you. And I told my story for the first time. And you could have heard a pin drop because they'd been with me for some time. But regardless, this woman realized that it was true she could forgive anyone and anything. And she was set free. And so was I. You give away what you need the most. And it fills that void in you. You know, people think, you've overcome so much and you think, okay, wow, I've crested the hill. Now I've got the sun at my back, the wind at my back. I'm sailing down a paved road. But life's not that way. Life's not a sitcom. Music doesn't kick in and we go off because you go through all of that and you think, all right, I'm self-aware. I'm all of these things. And then you hit a year like 2019. In 2019, what happened? Well, I was coming into the year, I, I had just lost my grandmother, my mom's mom, and I was grieving her. We were very close, and then my mom unexpectedly passed, which I thought I would have another couple decades with her. And I, I shot a docu-series com telling compelling stories of other survivors who had triumphed. And two of the people in that who I'd become very fond of passed away. And then my next-door neighbor, who I loved dearly, passed away. And I thought, I just need to go to the gym and work it all out. And broke my leg in a freak accident to the gym. It was one thing after another. I didn't know which end was up. And then one day in August, my husband left for work and never came back. And a couple months later, filed for divorce, and I received an email. And I was happily married. You know, it was all devastating to me, and I thought, I... Well, other than that, Miss Lincoln, how was the play? <laughs> I thought, I thought I, I already gave it the office on all this dealing with trauma stuff. I thought I had my share of it for a lifetime, but that's never so, is it? And I, I heard somewhere, listening to some podcast about, well, don't regard the, 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 those who are dead as gone. They're just, they're still here. Talk to them. So I started saying, oh, mom, grandma, and I was talking to all of them. And I walked down to the beach one day and thought, I'm just going to take a day and try to lift my spirits. And I nodded and said hello to a woman, and she freaked out. And I realized, oh, wait, she's not well. Wait, am I also crazy? I'm talking to dead people. And... I feel like I've, I'm in a free fall right now. Am I going to become like her? And I have to tell you, not as a teen, I was, I was quite resilient. You know, I'd sucked it up and moved on, but it felt like all of my foundation was gone now, and I didn't know how. And I thought, finally, 
this dark night of the soul sitting on the beach wondering if I was in fact going crazy, that I was going to do what I had done before and find a way to give it away. And so I started writing out, what can I do to overcome? And what am I doing each day that helps? And I'm, I'm writing another talk now uh, called <laughs> What Wanting to Die Taught Me About Living. You know, I have this theory, which is kind of strange, and Robin actually showed me a quote about this not too long ago that kind of reflected it. My theory is, we need to be happy for no reason. And yes. you need to be happy for no reason because reasons change. Reasons go away. You, know, you can be happy for this reason or this reason, but that goes away. And then if that was your reason for happiness, happiness needs to come from the inside out. If it's dependent on other people, other circumstances, other situations, whether it's your job, your relationships, your station in life, or whatever, all of that can go away. And so you've given your power away to the external world. But if you just decide, I'm gonna be happy from the inside out, not dependent on what happens around me, then you hold the power. Yes. And that gives you a freedom where you're not dependent on other things, other people, other circumstances. They can join your happiness and they can leave, but your happiness stays. When you were saying that, I kept kind of scooting away from you here. It's like <laughs> everybody you know is dropping like flies and broke your leg in four places and all of that. It's like a little cloud over your head for a year, but you've certainly come through it. And the idea is, look, none of us are getting out of this alive. So we're going to have to determine what attitude we're going to take in our approach to life. You talked about depression. There's intrinsic depression and extrinsic depression. Extrinsic depression is in reaction to things that happen in life. Intrinsic depression comes from the inside out, meaning that you've got something biochemical or out of whack. And this occurs to me that happiness is the same way. You can be happy because of external or you can be happy because of internal. Brilliant. I really believe in internal, an internal locus of control. The locus of control resides within me. You can find out whether you have an internal locus of control or not real easy. You ask yourself, if you get a cold, why did you get a cold? Did you get a cold because it's going around? <laughs> did you get a cold because you didn't take care of yourself? If you do well on a test, did you do well on the test because it was easy or because you prepared really well? If you say you did well on a test because it was easy, that's external. If you did well on a test because you prepared well, that's internal. You have to start asking, where do you attribute good or bad the results in your life. Yes. And if it's internal, you have an internal locus of control, then the only person you need to manage is yourself. And that has a great symmetry to it because the only person you can control is yourself. And I don't know, that's how I'd go through it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Tell me what's your favorite thing to do in terms of impacting people. Do you like motivational speaking? Do you like life skills training? Are those the same things for you? How do you like to impact people the most? One of the things I've been doing recently is working with small groups. And I have started doing it on video so people can participate wherever they are in the world in a way that works for them. But there's something about working in groups that are small enough that people can get personal interaction, but large enough so that we can see ourselves in another. Because most of the things that, that we each deal with are, we think it's a human, a personal thing, but it's human phenomena. So there's something about that particular format that I'm finding is really effective. You've had to overcome and have overcome, and I'm going to qualify that in a second, some really difficult things in your life. A lot of people have. Yours are very dramatic. You've had to overcome those things and be tough to do it. And you did it on your own. You chose to kind of push this down, handle it on your own instead of talk about it. Do you consider that toughness? Do you consider it compartmentalizing? Do you consider it denial? What was the quality or the strategy that you used to handle that for 10 years without ever touching it? Initially, I think it was a a little of all of them. There was some grit to it, certainly. I mean, you don't grow up on a a ranch without some grit. But I, I think, you know, in retrospect, it was also a little bit of denial, Mm -hmm. a little bit of, um, fantasy, like if I just pretend it didn't happen, even to myself, and never admit it, then it's as as though it didn't happen. What would your advice be if you were in one of your groups or whatever, and you encountered you at 18 years old, someone that maybe it was on a college campus here in the States, maybe it was after work or whatever, somebody had been violated the way you were violated and they confided in you, this happened to me a year ago, I haven't told anybody, I'm dealing with this internally on my own. Having gone down that road, what would be your advice to that person? Do not isolate, speak to people. I think my road of healing took so long because I isolated and kept it to myself. Get into therapy, get into a group, of survivors, something. Get into something that allows you to find community and realize that the responses you're having are natural and normal and you're not alone. 
And it's, it's interesting that you say that because every time I speak, which really truly is one of my favorite things, do public speaking, every time I do that, people come up and confide in me that they not only have been sexually assaulted or violated in some way, but that they've never told a soul. Adults, there was a woman who was 77 who told me. She had lived her life never telling anybody. Could you imagine bearing that from being a teen? That's the reason I wanted to ask you, because it sounds to me that if you could talk to 18-year-old Cheryl, you would say different things than you said to yourself then. So different. Suffering grows in silence. Pain grows. It replicates. It increases in size. And when we can shine the light on it, the light of being transparent, it, it has no place to continue to fester. And it's, it's, it really is the most profound healing. Although I had done so much work, the most profound healing came when I finally admitted it aloud mm-hmm. and to others, but to myself. I believe monsters live in the dark. Yes. And when you turn the light on, it's like, oh, that doesn't have as much power over me as I thought it did. That is profound. It's so and true. you did, and I'm glad you did. I want to use this as a teaching moment as well. And Robin will remember this. It was a family that I have done some life skills seminars over the years myself. We worked with the whole family. And these seminars would have a couple hundred people in them. And this family had three generations in the same group. Grandma, her kids, then their kids. And Grandma, sweetest lady, is very wealthy family, ranchers in East Texas, and she had a secret. And we got to a part in the training where you really unburden yourself with things that if you have something that you feel guilty or ashamed about. And she was having the hardest time. And she was like 72 years old. And she said, I just can't. I just can't do it. I can't give it a voice. I'm sorry. I know that y'all are courageous and you've done it. I just, I'm, I can't do it. I can't do it. And they came to get me to come and talk. We were there. I was in small groups. I came and talked to her. And I said, look, just you and me right here. Look me in the eye and just tell me quietly. There's nothing you can say that I'm going to judge you. Just This has burdened you your whole life? She said, I felt guilty and ashamed every day of my life since it happened. And I said, you're in your 70s, and you've carried this burden all this time? What is it? And she said, when I was 12, I had a seizure. And I said, and? I'm I'm waiting for her to say, like, and during that time, I went and robbed a bank and shot (laughs) nine people. But that was the end of the story. At 12, she had some type of seizure. And in her generation, that was interpreted in a lot of different ways, like demonic possession or something bad. It was not good. And she felt so much shame for that. She carried that for almost 60 years every day of her life because she isolated about it. And when she said it, everybody's like, what? Like, that's it? Right. She had no way of knowing that until she talked to people about it. And I said, look, that's a neurological storm that you can have once or repeatedly, and it has nothing to do with you. And 
I'm talking to her and she's getting taller mm-hmm. as I'm talking to her and her grandkids and her kids are around her and the next morning she looked 20 years younger she was free from this burden that was no burden at all only in her mind yes. because she isolated about it monsters live in the dark and when you talk about it you really claim dominion over it you have a power over it that you don't have if you don't if you don't talk about it you're not alone people think i'm the only one that feels this way suffers this no you're not nobody has invented new suffering in the last <laughs> 2000 years nobody's invented new suffering we share it with somebody somewhere somehow you are so accurate. It's also I- ironic that you mentioned seizures. One of the reasons I wanted to leave Colorado as a kid, I, I had, you know, growing up on a horse ranch, I roughhoused a lot, and I and I had a really bad head injury. I mean, a, a severe traumatic brain injury. I was in a coma, and on the other side of it, I had I suffered from something called anosmia, where I can't smell and mm-hmm. consequently can't taste very well, and I also got a seizure condition out of it. And as a teenager, they, the kids used to do experiments to see if I really couldn't smell or taste, like give me weird stuff and not tell me about it, put it in my food, like to see if I would say anything. Or the boys would walk by it and fart, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And they thought it was riotously funny, but I just felt so made fun of. And I was simultaneously having these seizures and I was very embarrassed about it because it was a different kind that I'd had in the hospital. And once in a while, like, I would wet myself. Mm-hmm. And I truly thought I could outrun all that stuff if I just got mm-hmm. out of there. And it was just what you said. I just pushed it down and hit it. And I thought, I'll get someplace where they won't know me. And then hopefully I won't ever have any of those things. But if I do, I'll just hide it. Nobody can live a life hiding, no matter what we're hiding. Whether it's that woman in mm-hmm. East Texas or, you know, it was me or any of us. But... You know, I think it's so inherent in our makeup when something seems different. Like you said, it's different than the mask that others show. We compare our inside to their outside and go, ooh, I better hide all this stuff. But it's the source of all of our suffering. It was for me, certainly. People need to realize you can't outrun you. Yes. I've got a friend that, wears a t-shirt that says, you can run, but you'll just die tired. <laughs> and and I, that's so profound to me. You can't outrun yourself and you, you can try. You'll run, run, run. You can get busy. You could lose yourself in your work. You can get 10 different degrees. You can overcompensate in five different areas. At the end of all of that energy, it's still there. It's just gotten yes. a little worse because it festers. Yes, it's hard to see in ourselves, though, yeah. sometimes. It's, it's, it's easier to see in another. And I, when I was trying to overcome the initial shock of, of being abducted by these men, I relied on the stories I heard from other people, like the, like the Holocaust survivors. And it was so therapeutic to me that I made it my mission now to tell inspiring stories of other people. And so I, I shot this docu-series called Rise of people who've done that, just have mm-hmm. risen from the ashes. It's one of the things that is most inspiring about watching you and my mom and grandma were both really big fans. It's the stories of hope that you bring. And I just, I know that they're here with me today. 
<laughs> not talking like the person who thought I was crazy for thinking I'm talking to the dead, but I, I, you know, I really do feel them here. And it's, I, I want in some way to bring these stories of hope to the world as well. I think in these polarizing times, seeing somebody else's example of somebody who's been able to pull it together and overcome and, and feel like, oh, that's me. I'm, I'm just like them. I can do it. Even if our circumstances in life are dramatically different, I think we learn through example. We learn through modeling. We learn through story. And don't make the mistake of trivializing your own story because it's inspirational as well. It does need to be the only story you tell, but don't put it at the bottom of the list because you think, ah, it's just me, because that's a powerful and inspirational story. I hope you keep talking. I hope you keep teaching. I hope you keep writing. I hope you keep getting up in front of people because I know you inspire people when you talk. And I really just cannot tell you how much it means. And if we go through life and bad things happen and we just suffer, then it's penalty. If we find meaning to the suffering, then it's at least tuition. We've taken a lesson from it, and that's what keeps you from going crazy. So answer this for me. How do people find you? What can we put on our websites? What can we tell people now? How do they encounter you? How do they find you? How do they get in your, your sphere? My website is CherylHunter.com, C-H-E-R-Y-L, Hunter. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 Instagram is my favorite place online, and it's Hunter Cheryl. Okay. And we'll put links to that on our website here for fill in the blanks. And we'll put links to that on drphil.com. Put it on my Facebook and my Twitter and my Instagram. And we'll push it out to millions of people so they know how to find you. I highly recommend that they do. I think you have an awful lot to offer people. I'm going to make it very easy for them to find you. Thank you. Thanks for talking to us. My honor. Appreciate it. Okay.